Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historic Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today I'm pleased to have with us Professor Sherry Berman. Professor Berman is Professor of Political Science at Barnard College. She has written several books dealing with social democracy and politics in 20th century Europe. And today we're speaking about her newest book, Democracy and Dictatorship in Europe, from Alcyon Regime to the Present, published by Oxford University Press. Welcome, Professor Behrman. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks. Uh, Professor, what is uh, the thesis of your book? Well, there are several main arguments in the book, but I guess the one that um, is maybe most important, especially for folks thinking about democracy today, is how very difficult it is to achieve stable well-functioning democracy. And the European cases make clear, um, you know, how long and winding, how full of violence and conflict the path to successful democracy was. Um, You know, especially if we think about um, the first transition to democracy in Europe, the French Revolution, we didn't get democracy, stable, well-functioning democracy as the norm in Western Europe, at least, until after 1945. That's a very long time. And there were lots of failed democratic experiments and nasty dictatorships um, along the way. Can you define for the audience how you use the uh, term democracy and liberal democracy as you employ it in the book? So that's a great question because there's so much talk about democracy today and oftentimes people are actually referring to very different things. So there's there's sort of two main ways, I would say, in both popular discourse and the scholarly literature to think about democracy. One is a kind of minimal conception, which is sometimes called elect, the electoral version of democracy. And that's basically um, characterizing any political regime that has relatively free and fair elections as democratic. A broader definition, a deeper definition, a more... Um, challenging definition, if you will, is a liberal conception of democracy. And that definition layers on to free and fair elections, a whole variety of things that we associate with liberalism, the protection of individual rights, rule of law, checks and balances, (coughs) excuse me, and all kinds of things actually that limit in many ways democracy or limit majoritarianism. And so that second type of democracy, liberal democracy, that is much rarer um, and much harder to achieve for for fairly obvious reasons. And again, it's really historically quite anomalous. It's only in the late 20th century that that form of democracy really became, as I said, kind of the accepted form of government in North America, Western Europe um, and a few other parts of the world. Could you define uh, for us uh, how you um, uh, dictatorship as you employed in the book? Well, like democracy, dictatorships come in 
all types of forms and varieties, but at its most basic, again, if we're looking at a minimal definition, dictatorships are regimes where leaders and governments are not chosen by election. They're not chosen by the people. They're chosen by heredity. That could be, um, you know, a monarchical regime. They're chosen by the military. Those are military regimes. They may be chosen by a small group of elites. That's some kind of oligarchy. Um, you know, all kinds of different forms of dictatorship exist, but they're not um, they're not they they are defined by the way they choose their leaders and governments. And that is to say, not by elections, not by um, all citizens. Uh, you employ in the book, say on chapter, I'm sorry, say on page um, 11, uh, something you term, quote, absolutist dictatorship, unquote. What do you mean by that term? And why do you employ it when most historians of uh, early modern Europe wouldn't actually employ the term dictatorship to describe uh, Austrian regime uh, entities? So that's a great question. I mean, those were monarchical regimes. Um, I call them dictatorships because, again, I think it's very important to think about these two broad categories, right? How do leaders and governments get chosen, right? And it is certainly true that before the French Revolution, the idea that the people could choose their leaders was ridiculous. It was never considered to be an option. The the sort of ideological and other infrastructure for that kind of conception of the way authority and rules should happen simply did not exist. And so what you had there were hereditary regimes, essentially, where leaders, again, were chosen by um, birth and where rule or authority was justified not by, again, representation of the people, service of the people or whatever, but simply by divine right. You know, kings had a right to rule. They were God's servant on earth. The reason why I call them absolutist, right, which a term which is used often in the literature is because something really important begins to happen to some of these monarchical regimes in the early modern period, with the French case being the sort of avatar of this trend, right, which is that kings begin to centralize power in themselves. They begin to take some of the power that lords, that is to say local nobles, um, we today call them warlords, but they were nobles in the European um, early modern period and um, religious authorities had. And so these rulers began to accrete or to centralize in themselves powers that rulers in earlier periods simply did not have. Now, they were never absolutist in the sense that they never had um, all the power, right? They were actually quite weak in many ways in comparison to the kinds of leaders actually that run modern states, but they were more powerful than um, their predecessors. And they did, again, take power and authority away from entities, particularly local notables and religious authorities who would have had them, who would have had that power and authority in an earlier period. And this is an incredibly important trend. It doesn't happen in all places, only some. Um, but where it did, what you saw was the beginning of modern states. And you also saw those leaders who were able to do that accordingly, um, able to survive the early modern period, while many places where that centralization of power did not occur, those places, those political entities simply disappeared from the map of Europe, swallowed up by um, places that did have rulers who were more successful in centralizing power. That's exactly what would happen with colonization uh, a couple of centuries in the future. Would it be true to say that you would not agree with historians like Jonathan Clark, who contend that even after 1688, 
England remained an ancien regime society? Well, it really depends, of course, on what you mean. The changes that happened in 1688 are really quite profound, but differentiating, for instance, 1688 from the French Revolution, I mean, the French Revolution had much more direct social and economic consequences, um, much more so than 1688, which was really a dramatic political change rather than a social and economic change. And one of the things that my book does stress very much is how much more difficult it turns out to be, perhaps ironically, to change social and economic structures and relationships than it is to change political ones. And so one of the stories of Europe, and this is very much reflected in the English or British case, is that, um, you know, political change happens and oftentimes the social and economic consequences or many of the social and economic relationships or structures of the ancien regime remain. And so one of the odd and actually um, uh, very, very um, distinctive, I would say, features of the English case is that the social and economic power of the British elite remains well into the 20th century. And this is very unusual, right? Because, um, you know, you do not have that in other countries. Either that power is destroyed by revolution, to some degree, the French, the Russian, things like that, or it's gradually eroded over time. But the British elite managed to hold on to an incredible store of social status, economic resources well into the 20th century. So in that sense, I agree with him, but not not accepting or recognizing how profoundly important the political changes were um, that came out of the English Civil Wars and then the Glorious Revolution in 1688 would also be doing, obviously, the British case uh, an immense disservice. In the case of France during the French Revolution, why uh, do you why did democracy, uh, if one wishes to employ that term to describe uh, the situation in France after the fall of monarchy in 17, uh, August, September 1792, why did it in turn, after a relatively short period of time, fail? Well, um, that's a very, very complicated question, right? That quote-unquote democratic experiment fails very, very quickly and um, not, um, and interestingly, again, with, with interesting um, uh, uh, sort of for, uh, you know, sort of foreshadowing of things that would happen later in European history, it collapses. So the first kind of democratic experiment, such as it was, collapses very quickly into Europe's first terroristic dictatorship, right? And there's an interesting, you know, there's lots of interesting things to think about about why that was the case. I mean, from the perspective of the book, and to be um, a little bit superficial, but I don't think um, entirely inaccurate, I mean, France makes a transition to democracy such as it is, as you say, after the King gets his head chopped off and the monarchy is finally uh, is eliminated. Um, there is absolutely no normative or institutional infrastructure for democracy to work. Plus, of course, um, the country is in complete and total domestic and international chaos. Right. I mean, as the monarchy collapses, as the situation becomes increasingly disordered, the country is marred by conflicts throughout much of the country. There's intense violence um, and fighting. Within France, um, some parts of the country are in essentially, you know, what we would consider to be um, civil war conditions. And of course, the entire country is threatened by an increasingly powerful alliance of forces um, that are determined to fight back um, the collapse of the monarchy in France. So you could, it would be very hard to imagine conditions that were less 
propitious for successful democracy. Again, no um, predecessors in European history, no institutional or normative infrastructure for democracy and an extremely chaotic domestic situation and an extremely threatening international one would have been really almost impossible to imagine the stabilization of any regime during that period. And in fact, what characterizes France between 1789 and 1799 is just the sort of incredible disorder and fluidity. I mean, the number of political regime types that emerge and fall quickly in France during those 10 years is, is you know, really quite head spinning. Is that why you state that, quote, in retrospect, it is clear that the French Revolution was not the end, but the beginning of the end of an era, unquote? Correct. Correct. So, I mean, oftentimes, and, and I may be guilty of this as well, you know, when you teach classes on European political history or read books upon about it, you know, the French Revolution is this incredibly important critical juncture, which it absolutely is, you know, in many ways, as the great historian Eric Hobsbawm and others have pointed out, really one of the foundational events of the modern world. But what you see is that the French Revolution really sets off an incredibly long chain of events, not just in France, but in Europe more generally, that take, as I, as I mentioned in, you know, in response to your first question, over 150 years to play out. I mean, France obviously doesn't get stable democracy, as we just discussed, after um, 1789. Um, and it takes a very long time for all of the forces that are uh, let loose by the French Revolution, not just the desire for new types of sovereignty and authority, not just a conception of the people and citizens that didn't exist before, but forces like nationalism, um, entirely new ways of thinking about the organization of society. Um, these things take 150 plus years to kind of work their way through France and European society. So the French Revolution should be seen as the triggering event for the modern era. It starts the chain of events that would lead us through, you know, the first and second world wars and up through the present day. It's simply not the end. It's, as you said, or as I mentioned in the book, the beginning of the end of that, you know, sort of ancien regime or pre-modern world. Why, in your view, was the revolutionary storm of 1848 inevitable? Well, I don't know if it was inevitable. I'm, I'm, I find inevitability to be a sort of, you know, a very um, challenging concept that you can always imagine different turning points. But there were certainly a lot of forces that were building up through the early 19th century that seemed to make some kind of political explosion, if not inevitable, then certainly very likely. I mean, the most obvious, but certainly not the only ones, is the incredible economic development that's going on in Europe during the early 19th century. These are the early days of capitalism. It's the first time in um, world history when growth rates start to outpace population growth, which essentially means that you actually get cumulative levels of growth, albeit at very low levels. And, you know, as um, European societies begin to change, as you get the beginnings of a working class, the growth of what we would today consider a middle class, um, increasing urbanization, new communications technologies, new transportation technologies. This is the period when railroads begin, of course, to explode across Europe. You get increasing pressures for political systems to reflect these changes. That is to say, middle class groups, as they grow in size and power, look around them and see that they are embedded in political systems that give them no power. And that in turn really limits um, their position in society, their access to economic resources, 
And so there's growing pressure for these political systems that were designed, you know, again, as we discussed during a sort of previous era, to reflect the changing social and economic realities of the time. Um, so there are these sort of broad structural trends that are going on in the first half of the 19th century. And then, as is always the case, you know, triggering events often are what determines the timing of the explosion. So you have just before 1848, a series of bad harvests and other kinds of, you know, particular events that really catapult or catalyze this growing discontent and turn it into um, mass mobilizations um, that end up having this profound wave-like effect in toppling monarchical dictatorships across Europe. Again, France sort of is the um, is the beginning of this trend. Um, you know, it is remains the kind of leading political country in many ways, setting the trends for the rest of Europe. And so the French regime collapses first. And then again, across Europe, you have this kind of wave of, um, uh, you know, uprisings against the monarchies that exist in, um, in, you know, many different parts of Europe. In your uh, uh, opinion, what was the long-term results of the failed revolutions of 1848? So actually, I find 1848 to be an incredibly interesting case and also incredibly helpful, oddly enough, even though it seems like the sort of remote past for thinking about um, trends that we've seen in the 20th and early 21st century. So what's interesting about 1848 is, um, you know, it is an incredibly rapid wave. That is to say, you know, this is obviously a time when, um, you know, there's no Twitter, there's no social media, there's no television. Um, you know, even newspapers had limited range. A lot of people obviously couldn't read. And yet, you know, once this major change happens with regime um, shifting in France, you see transitions and uprisings against dictatorships spread across Europe with incredible rapidity, right? So it doesn't require Twitter to have people in Prussia or people in parts of Italy or people in other areas of Europe understand that this is a time when things are, you know, new things are possible. So the, the, the range of uprisings um, that spread across Europe and the rapidity with which they do so is really quite remarkable from our perspective. But but what happens is despite this incredible wave of uprisings and the, the, the monarchy, monarchies across Europe sort of throwing their hands up and saying, OK, you know, we give in. Here's these reforms. Here's these constitutions. Within the space of a couple of years, it, 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 if you had parachuted down from Mars, you might have thought absolutely nothing had happened. That, that series of uprising, that series of political liberalizations had essentially disappeared in the sense that dictatorships were back in power across Europe, right? So, you know, you, you would have, if you had been there in 1848, the springtime of the peoples, you would have been incredibly optimistic, incredibly impressed by how rapidly these dictatorships that seemed rock solid just basically threw up their hands and gave in. And yet within the space of a couple of years, everything seemed to be back to the status quo ante. But in fact, in fact, that turns out with the benefit of hindsight not to be true. It is true that the democratic wave fails. There are no stable democracies in any of the major European countries after 1848. The projects of national unification that had been thrown up during that time in places like what would be Italy and Germany also fail. But, but in retrospect, we can see that all of these issues that were raised in 1848, all of these pressures, nationalist pressures, pressures for popular sovereignty and for political liberalization 
they don't disappear just because the wave fails. They don't disappear just because dictatorships are back in power. They remain sort of submerged under the repression of these dictatorships and they explode the minute they are given opportunity to do so. And that is really the story of the late 19th and early 20th century, which is the the reemergence over and over again of the same pressures, the same goals that had appeared in 1848 and had seemingly failed and failed spectacularly. These pressures do not disappear. They continue to define and propel European political development throughout the 19th and early 20th centuries. Would it be true to say that in your analysis of France after 1870, that uh, democracy was inevitable due to changes in French society, in essence, the case of uh, superstructure and base finally aligning more or less uh, correctly? So this 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 inevitability it's 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 sort of going to constantly trip me up, which is uh, inevitability again. I find just because his history is filled with so many twists and turns and so many sort of um, you know uh, uh, events that are sort of incredibly hard to predict. I prefer the kind of you know the idea or the you know the sort of picture of you know increasing pressures. Um, towards a or in a particular direction. But, you know, when those pressures are actually going to come together in particular ways, I think it's a little bit hard to predict. So I think what you have in France by 1870, right, are conditions that make um, a transition to democracy and some sort of stability for democracy much greater than you had, for instance, obviously during the French Revolution, during 1848, when we have another transition to democracy in France, I mean, by 1870, we have a society and economy that looks obviously very different. It's much more modern. Um, we have um, already in France, because, again, the French are, you know, always a little bit ahead of everyone else. They've tried pretty much everything. They've gone back and forth with different kinds of monarchies, different kinds of dictatorships. You also had during the period preceding 1870, the Second Empire, the beginnings of um, the growth of the kind of infrastructure that you would need for democracy, political parties for instance, um, and um, a freer press, um, civil society groups, all of these kinds of things under the empire begin to grow so that when a transition is finally made in France after the Franco-Prussian War, you know, not only has France had a lot of experience with different kinds of regimes, including democratic ones, obviously, but a lot of the infrastructure for democracy is there and a recognition that at this point, you know, again, they tried pretty much everything else. And so the conditions for a transition and for a somewhat more successful transition to democracy certainly are there in 1870 in a way that they were not in 1848 or in, you know, 1792, 1793, that kind of thing. Would it be accurate to say that uh, you adhere in, in terms of your analysis of uh, post-1871 Germany uh, as an example of uh, failed modernization? Uh, what I think the, the German school is the Bielefeld school, probably best uh, known by in the writings of Hans Ulrich Bieler. So great question. I love I love talking about Germany because it's obviously such an important uh, such an important case. So the German case is, um, you know, what you have in Germany after the formation of modern Germany um, in the early 1870s, right, is a, is a sort of very strange mix, right? You have a political system. That is a kind of um, actually in some ways we might consider not unusual today, but was unusual at the time, which was this sort of mix of, you know, what I would term dictatorial and democratic elements. So there's a Kaiser, an emperor, right, who has 
significant powers. He's sort of the executive. You have a, a prime minister, a chancellor and a government that is not responsible to the parliament, not directly responsible to the parliament, not directly responsible to the people, but is chosen by the Kaiser. Right. So those are non-democratic elements. But you do have a Reichstag, a lower house of parliament that is elected by universal suffrage, which, by the way, was really, really unusual in Europe at the time. And, you know, even the United States, obviously, at that point, doesn't have universal manhood suffrage men. Right. Um, and so it's this kind of weird mix of elements that are sort of designed to reflect the reality of, of Germany's situation. Right. Which is that it is a in some ways, an increasingly modern country, right? Economic development is changing German society, would have made it really difficult for Bismarck to completely shut citizens out from the political system. But it has these powerful dictatorial or non-democratic elements built into it. But what happens in Germany, partially as a result of the state building that happens during that early modern period we talked about, you know, at the beginning of this conversation, is you have a, a group of very powerful pre-modern in some way elites called in Germany the Junkers, who managed to embed themselves in the German state and in this new German political system in ways that allow them to hold on to political power, right, much for much longer than their economic power should have allowed them to do so, right? Um, and so they managed to control much of the German state and through protections built into the German political system, um, managed to hold on to political power. And they therefore, over the course of the late 19th and beginning of the 20th century, managed to stymie political modernization. That is to say, um, growing pressures for political liberalization and democratization. So when German historians talk about sort of stalled or failed modernization, this is really what they're talking about. The fact that the incredible economic development of Germany does not force these Junkers to give up their political power and that they continue to use this political power to try to hold back the forces of social and political change, creating incredible tensions and incredible conflicts in German society that obviously would explode first in the um, Great War and then, I mean, really rip apart um, the Weimar Republic and contribute to the um, rise of Hitler um, by the end of the interwar period. What do you mean when you say, quote, the key puzzle of interwar Europe is why some democracies survived and others did not, unquote? Right. Well, you have after the First World War um, another democratic wave, that is to say another series of transitions to democracy. Monarchies, empires obviously collapse after the First World War, and you have a whole bunch of countries um, you know, starting the interwar period as democracies, right? But if you sort of line them up, which I do in my book, you know, nice little chart, probably a lot of folks have seen in history texts or something like that. You see, you know, in 1918, all of these countries in Europe that are democratic, and by the early 1930s, only some of them, in fact, very few of them remain so. So, you know, trying to puzzle through, okay, why do all these countries, you know, again, in the democratic category in 1918, by 1933 or 1934, only a few of them remain, right? So it's a great sort of experiment, so to speak, for political scientists or students of democracy to try to figure out, okay, look, what are the characteristics the successful cases have and what are the characteristics the non-successful cases have? And, you know, that is, of course, also, you know, the tragedy of the period because the dictatorships that form in the 1930s are even more violent 
even more repressive, even more, um, you know, um, genocidal, obviously, in the case of the Nazi regime than their predecessors, previous dictatorships in Europe um, were. Why was the UK so stable politically, particularly in the interwar period? So that's a tough question. But um, I would say that the place to start is with um, one of the questions you asked earlier with regards to what happened in England and Britain during the 17th century. Right. So during the 17th century, that is to say, you know, again, about a century before, at least if we're talking about the Glorious Revolution, um, uh, you know, we had the French Revolution. Britain makes this kind of important political shift to not a democratic system. It was not democratic at all, but a constitutional system a system that was much more liberal in a political sense than um, existed in uh, any other part of Europe, pretty much any other part of Europe at the time. And one notably, again, where the king was now very much counterbalanced by a parliament, which would indeed over the course of the coming centuries gain, continue to gain the upper hand vis-a-vis -vis the monarchy. And this system remains um, essentially stable throughout the 18th and 19th century, so that we do not have any more major political transitions in England or Britain during the modern period. And this system proves remarkably successful in adjusting to the challenges of the modern era. So as pressure, for instance, builds across Europe for political liberalization, um, you know, with, um, you know, the changes that happen in European economies and societies, this system adjusts. We have reform acts in 1832, um, in the late 19th century. And so this regime manages to cut off all of these growing pressures before they explode into violence and conflict. So that by the time 1918 rolls around and we get something in Britain, for instance, that resembles a transition finally to full you know, universal manhood suffrage. We have strong political institutions. We have strong political parties. We have a system that is proven over and over again, able to adapt. And so, you know, Britain enters the interwar period with a political system that is tried and tested, that has an incredible degree of legitimacy, and that is able to adapt to the challenges that Britain, like other European countries, face with and after the Great War. So, I mean, a lot of the story of why Britain escapes from the interwar period relatively unscathed simply cannot be understood without this previous history, right? Which is that it has these longstanding, um, flexible and legitimate political institutions that enable it to deal with challenges. This is something obviously new democracies don't have because their institutions are young, weak, um, and that um, is really quite, um, unusual in Europe by this time. What, uh, in uh, your opinion, was the key causation that caused the collapse of Little Italy, I'm sorry, Liberal Italy, in a little over four years after the end of the Great War? So again, this is a book, the book that we're discussing, um, you know, that takes <laughs> a deeply historical perspective on things. And I think it is, again, simply impossible to understand why Italy collapses into dictatorship so quickly after the First World War without looking at um, the historical background. And that historical background, in this case, has to go back to the Risorgimento, to the unification of Italy. I mean, the Italian political system was battered, weak, and illegitimate before the First World War, right? So you saw in Italy, even before the war breaks out, right, growing discontent. The country had been violent ever since 
Um, it was formed, constant uprisings, the growth of extremist movements. Um, and so, you know, the, what happens is that the First World War adds, and the aftermath of the First World War in particular, adds on to an already incredibly difficult situation, a whole slew of new problems that sort of rapidly overwhelm the political regime. But it is not, the, the regime itself was not, was not a product of the post, you know, World War I period. This was a regime that, as I said, enters the war already facing a situation where extremist parties were strong, where conflict was widespread, where violence was, you know, part of um, political history, where corruption was endemic. And so really what you have is a system that's weak and illegitimate that would not even under the best of circumstances be up to dealing with challenges, but certainly not up to dealing with the challenges that Italy faces as a result of the First World War. And so that it, it is one of the first to collapse is not a surprise if you know something what the country if you know something about what the country's political system looked like entering the war. Uh, what would you highlight more, the structural or contingent in, in explaining the collapse of the Weimar Republic? So I think that story has to be told with both of those factors or both of those types of factors very much in mind. It is certainly true that the Weimar Republic begins with a whole variety of structural flaws, fault lines or problems, many of which obviously, as in the case of Italy and, and you know other countries come from that pre-war period. That regime that we talked about a little bit ago that is formed by German unification in the 1870s, you know, different from Italy, that is to say different types of fault lines. But again, by, by 1914, the pressures for change within that system were ready to explode. And indeed, you know, many historians look at the First World War and say it is simply impossible to, and I agree, impossible to um, understand why Germany rushes headlong into that war without looking at these domestic pressures and these domestic conflicts. So, you know, the, the German political system is on the verge of a precipice in 1914. Um, and so when it begins its life after 19. 18 as a democracy, there are all of these unresolved problems, all of these unresolved conflicts that, you know, only reemerge under the democratic regime. And then, of course, Germany is left after the First World War in an incredibly unenviable position, right? It's not only economically devastated and, you know, militarily defeated, but it is saddled with not just the humiliation of the, you know, um, of losing the war, but an incredible economic burden in the form of reparations. Um, you know, the military regime that had essentially um, ruled Germany during the last years of the war doesn't prepare its citizens for the defeat. It keeps telling them up till the last minute that, you know, Germany is doing great and we're going to win. And so then, you know, when the defeat becomes inevitable, they're sort of trying to sell this as a sort of stab in the back. That is to say that it wasn't their fault the military regime's fault that Germany lost, but because it was sold out by these new democratic forces. And so the Weimar Republic begins its life with all of these challenges, all of these problems. And then, of course, the interwar period layers on even more challenges. We have a great inflation in Germany in the early 1920s that simply devastates the country economically, particularly the middle classes who begin fleeing towards extremist parties after that. Um, and then, of course, the Great Depression, which hits Germany harder than any other country except for the United States. I mean, surviving those kinds of conditions really, again, 
very, very hard to imagine. However, to get back to the question about contingent factors, even though it may be easy to explain using these broader structural factors why democracy was overwhelmed, understanding why it is exactly that the Nazis are the beneficiaries of it, then I think it's very hard to tell that story without looking at some very smart moves made by the Nazis themselves and Hitler in particular. That is to say the party was extremely successful. Hitler was extremely successful in taking advantage of the opportunities that this weakening of democracy gave him. He steered his party in important ways. Um, the party was very successful um, in the late 1920s and early 1930s in taking advantage of a lot of the problems that Germany had and changing its program to appeal to as wide a sector of the German population as possible. And then at the very end, the fact that conservatives essentially connived behind the scene to put the final nail in the coffin of democracy and to hand power to Hitler as opposed to trying to figure out some other solution. Those, you know, those things are critically important in determining what exactly happens in 1933. And it's hard to tell that particular part of the story without these contingent factors or rather without looking at the choices made by key political actors, by Hitler, by the Nazi party, by conservatives and also by other democratic actors who didn't quite see the writing on the wall, perhaps as clearly as we wish um, they could have. Now, in your analysis of Spain in the interwar period, would it be correct to say that for you, the failure of the Second Republic was overdetermined? Same kind of thing, right? This is also a case where, especially with the benefit of hindsight, we can see the incredible challenges that that Second Republic faced, right? Spain had been perhaps the most conflictual, um, violent country in Europe during the 19th century. Coups, for instance, were endemic, like, you know, just constant uprisings, military takeovers, that kind of thing. None of the institutional or normative infrastructure for democracy exists when Spain makes a transition late in the interwar period towards the Second Republic after having first again tried a sort of what we might consider today to be a populist dictatorship during the early part of the um, interwar period. And Spain, when it makes this transition to democracy, it is really, again, not only without any background in real liberalism or democracy, right, embedded in an interwar period where, again, there are incredible challenges, makes a transition to democracy at a time when democracy is already beginning to fail in other parts of Europe. It is dominated, the Second Republic is, by two political parties neither one of which is truly committed to democracy. This is true for both the left and the right, unfortunately. Neither one of these parties really puts democracy first. It puts its own goals first. And so you don't really have, you know, a lot of the, uh, pretty much any of the things that you would need to be able to get a democracy to stabilize, particularly during a different difficult period like the interwar um, years were. But again, the end of that republic, the way in which it ends and how it ends, hard to tell that story again without looking at the choices made by particular political actors. And I would say here, the right is obviously much more to blame, but the major party of the left really was not was not interested in sacrificing for democracy and so made some choices at the end that also did not did not help things and so, you know, as in other parts of Europe, you get this collapse. The fact that it collapses into a civil war that drags on for um, a few years and that ends up killing hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Spaniards, 
that also can't be understood without looking at the international context, because it's the intervention of foreign powers that really drags that war out and makes it even more deadly than it might otherwise have been. How important from your perspective was Nazi rule and the destruction caused by the Second World War in assisting Germany's post-1945 transition to democracy? So that's a great question. And I think one of the sort of ironies of um, European history or German history, as well as a really important lesson. So, you know, we began this conversation about talking about the Ancien Regime, about talking about how the French Revolution is the beginning of the end of that Ancien Regime and about um, this idea that, you know, sort of social and economic change is not necessarily linked to political change. So what happens, of course, in Germany, as we discussed earlier, is you have German unification. You have a transition to democracy after the First World War. But many of the sort of social um, and economic norms and relationships um, that define a kind of um, non-modern Germany, again, to go back to those terms that uh, German historians often use, remain in Germany up through the interwar period, right? Those Junkers, for instance, remain powerful political actors. Um, a lot of um, these sort of status and social divisions in German society remain um, powerful up through the interwar period. The Nazi regime and then the Second World War really destroys all of that. I mean, when Hitler comes to power and the Nazis take over, all of those old, you know, sort of pre-modern um, social and economic aspects of German society really begin to get destroyed. So the Junkers are essentially destroyed, um, de de taken out of power by Hitler and the Nazi regime. Um, and then their, their, their remnants are destroyed by the Second World War and their aftermath. They are literally liquidated. They do not exist as a class anymore by 1945. Their lands have been also taken over after the Second World War. That part of Prussia is no longer part of Germany, Western Germany. It, it falls under communist rule. Um, and Prussia itself obviously also disappears. This kind of stronghold of the Junkers does not exist as a political entity in which powers can be embedded that would stymie um, political developments in other parts of Germany. Um, Hitler, um, puts in place, interestingly enough, a political system where birth no longer matters, right? You rise in the Nazi state, not because of who your father was and, you know, what kind of club you belong to, but simply because of your loyalty to the regime and your fealty towards its racist ideology. It's an entirely new type of social order. Um, Hitler, of course, also for the first time, um, puts in place in Germany, oddly or ironically enough, civilian control over the military. The military had been an incredibly powerful political actor in Germany up through the interwar years. Hitler puts that to an end. Hitler makes decisions. The military does not. So we have civilian rule over the military for the first time as a result of Hitler and the Nazi regime. The German state is also completely changed. The power, um, again, goes to the Nazi party, not to these old elites. Um, Economically, um, Hitler is in charge. There is simply no free private enterprise under the Nazi regime. If you want to continue to operate your business, you must do so under the dictates laid down by the regime. Everything changes. And the Second World War changes things even more. So when people refer to the period after 1945 as the Stunde Null, the zero hour, 
That is absolutely true. And it is particularly true in Germany. And again, ironically, what happens as a result of the incredible violence of the Nazi regime in the Second World War is many of the remnants of, so to speak, Germany's Ancien regime are finally and utterly destroyed. How important was the United States in assisting West European transition to democracy in the post-1945 period? Incredibly important. Incredibly important. Not only, obviously, because it helps to win the Second World War, right, without which a transition to democracy obviously would have been impossible, but because the United States comes in after 1945 and does a bunch of concrete, important things that were necessary for democracy. So we talk about the Marshall Plan. Yeah, that was important, but it was really part of a larger endeavor. First and most obviously, it occupies Germany, right, and um, does a lot of things during that occupation to put Germany on a path to democracy. It encourages European unification in a whole variety of direct and indirect ways, including the Marshall Plan, which um It's not only aid to Europe, but in order to access and use those funds, European countries have to cooperate amongst themselves. Um, and that helps to lay the foundations for European integration. And of course, the United States sets up the international security and economic arrangements and institutions through um, that that set the context for economic, economic development. I mean, the Europeans could not protect themselves after the Second World War from communism, from external threats. They were no longer capable of doing that. And so that is essentially what NATO is. The United States comes in and says, look, we're going to take over this function that modern states are supposed to be able to um, to um, carry out on their own. That is to say the protection of borders, the protection from external threats. And that's what NATO does. It protects Europe from its external enemies and external threats. It also sets up a whole range of economic institutions without which Europe's economic recovery would have been impossible. And without economic recovery, it is really hard to imagine how political stability could have occurred. So, you know, the Europeans obviously do an awful lot themselves, but it is very hard to imagine the stabilization of Western Europe without the incredible multi-pronged effort that the United States mounts after the Second World War. You're right. Well, Democratic consolidation is best understood as a two-fold process, eliminating the old order and building up a new one. Where does this process leave countries which do not uh, see violent change, such as Sweden, Denmark, and Switzerland? So it's, that's a sort of, I think, hard thing for a lot of folks to kind of um, grasp both conceptually and empirically, right? That you can eliminate a dictatorship or eliminate dictatorships, um, but that's not the same thing as um, putting in place the conditions necessary to make democracy work. So in some parts of Europe, for instance, we just talked about Germany, that's the kind of avid, you know, sort of exemplar of this kind of thing. It actually took incredibly violent events like war to kind of eliminate the remnants of the Ancien regime. There are countries in Europe, um, in particular, some of the smaller ones that you mentioned, like um, the Scandinavian countries, where obviously, you know, the first and the second world war are important events, but they're not, they do not have the kind of impact on society that, um, uh, you know, the first and second world war have on countries that actually participated in it. And in there, the sort of elimination of the Ancien regime happens much more gradually and in some ways much more and in many ways much more peacefully. Um, and here it's really the result of sort of, again, gradual change over time. Often economic modernization is really crucial in eliminating the power and position of 
non-democratic old, if you want to call them ancien regime elites, and creating sort of new social um, arrangements and new social relationships and new economic arrangements and new economic relationships that could really help to um, both push um, pressures for democratization forward and then help create conditions to make democracy work. So in some places it required really violent, very dramatic effects to eliminate these social and economic remnants of the ancien regime. But in some countries, and I would say these countries are in the minority, it happens more gradually over time. Britain is the best example of a major European country that follows this sort of more peaceful, gradual path. It happens in some other places like Scandinavia, but it's not it's not the norm. You know, the French type of development, the Spanish type of development, the Italian type of development, the German type of development. That's, I would say, the dominant pattern where political development during the modern era is incredibly conflictual. It is not in any case, in any sense of the word, gradual or linear. And it is really at many points extremely violent. Uh, when exactly did liberal democracy become prevalent in post-1945 Western Europe? So I would say then, right, liberal democracy as the norm um, is really not a thing before 1945. Um, it's, it only becomes the norm after 1945. We can see, again, in some of those more gradual cases, um, you know, something maybe resembling liberal democracy by the interwar period in places like Britain or Scandinavia. But as far as liberal democracy being the norm, the taken for granted type of political regime, that is a post-1945 phenomenon in Western Europe. And of course, not in Eastern Europe, which, you know, falls back under dictatorship, albeit of a new communist variety after 1945. Would it be true to say that you do not have much use for a Burkean perspective on political change? Um, the, what do you mean by a Burkean perspective? You mean a sort of gradual perspective that we should just allow things to kind of unfold slowly and gradually? Yes, organically, and that uh, this is positive rather than negative. Well, look, you know, in an ideal world, if I was God, um, would I have political development that looked more like the British case than the German case or the French case or the Spanish case or the Italian case? Sure, because that society was spared the internal violence that characterized the other cases. But we don't live in that. We don't live in a world where there's some, you know, a godlike force determining political development. It would not have been possible, I think, for Germany to have been uh, as successful a democracy as it was after 1945, oddly enough, without much of the violence that had occurred before. Similarly, France, um, you know, it took all of those failed experiments to finally, you know, sort of get something that resembled political stability after 1945. So, you know, in an ideal world, sure, who wants violence and conflict? But the reality is, is that that was just not possible in other countries. So it's not, it wasn't as if holding back the forces of change would have somehow given us ultimately a more beneficial outcome. There was really, you know, there, there was no gradualist option in these other countries. And so that question strikes me as, you know, in an ideal world, sure, who wants violence and conflict? But that's just not the way political development has naturally worked. That is really a luxury of, of you know, being part of the British case. And also the irony, of course, is, is that, you know, um, Burke was intimately connected, obviously, to Ireland. Ireland does not participate in this sort of gradual, peaceful development. If you were Irish, you know, the modern era looks a lot more violent and conflictual than it does if you were living in England or Wales or even Scotland.
if you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? I would go back to the first question you asked. And that is to say that one needs to recognize how incredibly historically anomalous and difficult to achieve liberal democracy is. This requires an incredible amount of not just political change, but social and economic change. It requires people, citizens, accepting things that historically have been very difficult to accept, political equality for all individuals, the protection of minority rights, limitations on majoritarianism, checks and balances, um, rule of law, all of these things are not things that are easy for people to accept or understand. And that is not looking down on people at all. These are difficult, difficult things to achieve. Um, and they really are, as, as we've talked extensively about now, um, things that it took Europe over 150 years to achieve. Again, if we start political development um, in modern Europe with the French Revolution. And so when we look at countries, whether they're in Eastern Europe or other parts of the world today, and we think of them as sort of these terrible basket cases, why can't these people understand how terrible dictatorship is and how horrible illiberalism is? Yes, dictatorship is terrible. Yes, illiberalism is bad. That is not, that is not, uh, the, the history does not show that dictatorship is good and illiberalism is good, but it does show that it is very difficult to achieve these things. And so we should, A, I think, not give up hope that these countries will someday be able to achieve successful liberal democracies. And we should also ourselves, by recognizing how long it took us to get here and how difficult that path was, have a greater appreciation for the frailty of liberal democracy and therefore hopefully um, somewhat more commitment to making it work, to thinking about all of the ways that in the past it went wrong and all of the ways that it is potentially going wrong today and be cognizant of the fact that if we as citizens don't work to protect it, it is very, very easy for it to fall apart. On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Berman, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Berman. Thank you very much. I thought that went very well. I would like to thank you for being so kind as to speak with me. And this should appear on uh, New Books Network in approximately seven to uh, eight business days. Once it appears, I will forward to you and to the publicist at uh, Oxford a link uh, to the uh, podcast. Great. Thank you. And thank you for those incredibly challenging questions. It was really, it was really fun. Oh, it was the most enjoyable book to read. Great. Thanks so much. Have a nice weekend. You as well. Goodbye, Professor. <laughs>